Buried, my conflicting desires to be both free and safe kept me bound. I railed, I danced, I wept. The sand beneath me shifted. This was all to the good. A few more years and friends would be gone. People would say that I had changed. I would have become different, a different person. The anxiety would be gone, but so too would the fine flush that came of dancing dreamily before the mirror. If the split that divided me was to heal, there was much that would have to be given up. No more the comforts of safety. No more the glories one can imagine when one is living solely in one's head. Once the inner conflict between dependence and independence has been tracked down, identified and isolated from the tightly woven fabric of one's day-to-day -day life, only then can the leap be taken from the small stuffy room of fear and out into the open flames of freedom. In working through the inner conflict, a process is required. Therapists call it working through. You don't have to engage in formal treatment to learn how to work through conflict. You do have to be systematic and persistent. A vague, generalized awareness that you're in conflict won't get you very far. Work will. There has to be a con conscious, deliberate effort to follow up and separate the entangled threads of inner conflict if one wants to get off the motionless seesaw of stasis. The conflict between wanting to be free and wanting to be enclosed and protected is insidious because it carries with it a hidden gain. Conflict allows us to stay exactly where we are. The condition we admit to wanting, independence, acts as a cover for something we want just as much, but can't admit to. Dependence, the need for delicious, primal security. With these two opposites driving us, we get to stay in limbo. And limbo has its advantages. It may not be very hot, but neither is it very cold. It isn't exciting, but neither is it quite the same as being dead. You can't work through dependency if you don't identify it, that much is certain. Identifying the tendency then is the first step in getting past it. You have to consciously look for the signs. The time in my life when I spent the wee hours prancing in my plumed hat, I was also complaining a lot that the reason I couldn't make money as a writer was that they, the editors and publishers, didn't do right by us writers. Allying myself with all the put-upon writers who ever lived, I kept myself the victim. I refused to do anything that might compromise my ideals, cursed the system, and conveniently continued to do the same work I had always done, over and over and over again. The idea that I might be afraid to try something new, that maybe I didn't have the nerve to take a chance, to experiment, to get behind something unprecedented, that thought never occurred to me. My problems remained comfortably hidden 
while I went on complaining. Work wasn't the only part of life that was stunted by conflict. My love life was sh a shambles. Buffeted as I was between the need to be loved and my equally strong wish to reject that need. The apparent narcissism of those late night encounters with the mirror was in sharp contrast with how I felt when I looked at myself in the harsh light of day. You're getting old, I would say, scrutinizing my face in the mirror for new signs of decrepitude. You don't look good anymore. That, pre that preoccupation with aging, with anything that made me feel negative about myself, should have been a sign. I was having, at that time, a limited, unfulfilling relationship with a man who was married. While I danced, vain gloriously at night, in daylight I feared I wouldn't be able to hold this man whose very remoteness I found fascinating. Not getting the love the other part of me needed, I blamed the man for being shallow, for not having the courage to fling himself into a mad, passionate relationship with me. It was projection, pure and simple, of course. I was the one who lacked courage. I went on seeing this man several afternoons a week for an entire year, thereby keeping, my safe, keeping myself safe and miserable. In both work and love, then, I was weighed down by inhibitions of all kinds. I thought I was experiencing the inevitable fears emerging from the stagnation of a long, oppressive marriage. I may, it may have been that in, it may have been that in part, but it was also much more. The drive to stay down was strong, and it clashed with the equally strong drive to burst out, to excel, and to make a name for myself. The two drives, one expansive and one restrictive, seemed to cancel each other out, leaving me caught in the middle. Fatigue settled down over my life like soot on the neighbouring rooftops. I continued working, but it was hard to get anything done. I chastised myself for my slowness. I bit my fingernails. The energy leak. When we are essentially divided, we can have whole areas of our personalities eclipsed because we have to use up so much energy in the effort to suppress or deny one side or the other of the basic conflict. This is how we try to approximate psychological wholeness. I, for example, was always trying to deny my drive towards independence, towards dependence, and exhausting myself in the process. As Karen Horney explained it, the part of ourselves we try to suppress is still, still sufficiently active to interfere, but cannot be put to constructive use. The process, she said, constitutes a loss of energy 
that might otherwise be used for self-assertion, for cooperation, or for establishing good human relationships. This lack of energy is another sign of conflict over hidden dependency. The energy leak manifests itself in indecisiveness and inertia. Those in conflict vacillate endlessly. Should I take this job or that? Should I stay home or go back to school? Should I love him or leave him? The back and forth wastes energy like a furnace trying to heat a house when the windows have been left open. The decisions may be trivial or they may be major, but the process is just the same. Issues get clouded. Procrastination leads to self-chastisement and a kind of aimless, angry frustration. Such a divided mental state empties us, crippling our effectiveness. It may take hours to write a simple report, for example, or to clean out the linen closet, or to plan a menu. For those in conflict, even the simplest tasks seem to require an inordinate amount of effort. Ineffectualness resulting from inner strain usually shows up as well in the way we relate to people. If, for example, we want to assert ourselves, but also want to comply, we end up acting hesitant. If we need to ask for something, but also feel we should command it, we will come off as imperious. If we want sex, but have an inner desire to frustrate our partners, we will have difficulty of reaching orgasm. We may blame any and all of our problems on working too hard, on not getting enough sleep, on low resistance, or whatever, but our wrought up state probably has more to do with the cross currents of conflict waging the battle within. Getting past conflict requires more than doing band-aid jobs on all the cracks and fissures that divide us. Disentangling means going after the root causes so that the need to be split no longer survives. How do you do this? By paying scrupulous attention to yourself by leaving no stone unturned in examining your motives, your attitudes, your ways of thinking about things. When a threat appears, some odd little attitude or a bit of behavior you notice that doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of your personality. Follow it. Don't say, oh, that's just a little inconsistency in my character. It's not really me. It is really you, and your inconsistencies, if you track them down and study them, will lead you to the motherload of, underli of underlying conflict. You might notice, for example, 
that you shuttle between extremes, that you vacillate, say, between being strict with yourself and being self-indulgent. You may recognise that you waver between putting others down and believing secretly that they're superior, or that your need to put yourself down interferes with your ability to compete successfully, while at the same time your need to triumph over others makes winning a compelling necessity. Notice especially how you veer between arrogating all rights to yourself and feeling that you have a right in the world, rather than feeling sorry for yourself for the latter, suspect yourself for the former. Arrogating all rights to yourself is the same thing as having to have your own way, a dead giveaway of a dependent personality. The point to remember is this. Personality quirks may not be minor aberrations. In fact, they probably reflect major divisions in your personality. Watch them coolly and objectively without guiltily berating yourself for being less than perfect. And they will lead to major and previously unrecognized aspects of who you are. By facing and accepting these hidden parts of yourself, you will ultimately discover a new integrated self. For me, strange discrepancies in my attitude towards money ended up revealing major, major distortions in my relations to others. I will tell you how I followed the dangling threads of my money problem until they led to the giant ball of twine that for years had been winding itself around a central character disturbance. The wish to have someone else do the hard stuff, the wish to be saved. About five years after my marriage broke up, I discovered with some chagrin that I didn't want anything to do with money. If it came right down to it, I could be perfectly happy living on an allowance. In fact, for, two, for almost two years, that's exactly how I lived. Lau paid all the bills. Stricken by a pervasive listlessness, I earned virtually nothing. My account at the local bank was almost always empty. And so increasingly were the coffers for my self-esteem. Here was the predicament. On the one hand, I found it demeaning to have to go to Lowell for money every time I needed to get my shoes repaired. On the other hand, and this is what I had to unravel, various long entangled threads to discover. I liked the situation more than I didn't like it. It took many confrontations before I was willing to hear and accept things Lau was telling me that I was leaning on him at his expense as well as my own. That there were other, more fulfilling things he could be doing with his energies than supporting five people. Finally, I could no longer ignore the injustice of this plea. It was not just pressure from Lau, however, that was throwing me into conflict. 
the longer I allowed him to carry the responsibility for my welfare, the worse I felt about myself. After flailing inwardly and also experiencing huge amounts of anger, I finally pulled myself out of this trough and started doing some productive work. Money began to come in, more of it in fact than I'd ever earned before. But the fact that I still yearned to be taken care of showed itself in the way that I handled, or more accurately, didn't handle my new earnings. I had always assumed that if I had enough money, I'd be able to avoid the inconvenience of having to manage it. That's a characteristic attitude. If only I had enough money, I thought, I would never have to hold myself accountable. I would never have to stay on top of things, manage them, be conscious, be aware. I would never have to recognise how terribly real everything is. My major trick I discovered was to avoid keeping a running balance in my checkbook. That way I never knew how much money I had. The longer I neglected to subtract my debits, the fuzzier my whole life picture became. Not knowing for sure how much money I possessed at any given time, I was able to continue feeling helpless. How could I competently evaluate whether I should spend money on a new pair of boots, or if I could afford to buy life insurance, or if I could, or if I could afford not to buy insurance? The mental image I carried was always of the last big deposit I'd made. My deposits as a freelance were large, but irregular. No matter how many checks I might have written since that deposit, I'd still have the original 5000 in mind. Eventually, some 11th hour instinct for survival would prod. Okay, you'd better tally up. Usually by the time I'd taken it upon myself to figure out where I stood, whatever money I had remaining was like a sliver of soap in a child's hand. Refusing to take care of my little hoard, refusing to protect it, to put it in a safe place, to take it out only when needed, I'd invariably end up staring at the pitiful remains and wondering, where did it all go? The refusal to deal with money functioned as both a symbol of my helplessness and the cause of it. I never noticed that my assets were diminishing and so, over and over again, it came as a shock when they ran out. Why this chronic head in the sand denial? I didn't want to face the fact that I was going to have to keep replenishing my funds over and over again for the rest of my life. After many months of pain and confusion, I decided, keep your checkbook in order and see what it makes you feel like. Well, what it made me feel like was incompetent. The sands were always running out of my hourglass. I was always losing, never gaining. I would never be able to catch up to create a state of equilibrium between income and outgo. 
After a while, I began to see that the whole statement balancing operation was metaphor. Not to keep a running balance is a form of avoidance. I liked not knowing where I stood because then I could go on feeling no responsibility whatsoever for the consequences of my behaviour. How often my children's dentist bills would get put aside while I shook my head dismally and said, there just isn't enough money this month. Yet others I knew who earned less money than I managed to keep up with. Yet others I knew who earned less money than I managed to keep up with their bills. Others I knew with less money had medical coverage and retirement or pension plans, disability insurance, all the dull but realistic provisions the grown-up makes for protecting children and old age. I kept avoiding these realities, believing somehow that I was exempt from them, believing that if I, that if I just hang on long enough, pay enough rent bills, enough phone bills, enough dues, that I would eventually be plucked from the vicissitudes of this nasty, scary, demanding life and be saved. Keeping a running balance is not just good financial policy, it's good emotional policy. It means maintaining a day-to-day -day or even moment-to-moment -moment connection with reality. It means not letting a wellspring of anger develop towards the children or the man with whom I live. It means not letting things slide when I'm depressed, but stopping, sitting down and checking things out. What's going on here? Where are my energies going? Where is my gratification, gratification coming from? Does the energy output meet the gratification income or is there an imbalance? Am I spending more than I'm getting? And if so, how can I get more? Questions such as these are part of a self-balancing process. I try to take my own counsel. I become responsible for my own happiness or unhappiness rather than shift that responsibility to someone else. Keeping a running balance in my psychic account makes it less likely for me to retain a distorted, unrealistic picture of things. I know what my assets are, but I also know my limitations. Within the framework of these realities, I'm able to establish meaningful goals and priorities to live realistically in the present. To keep a running balance means to engage with life's possibilities to activate one's own change and growth rather than waiting for something to happen, to become, in effect, one's own prince. Sometimes it is only in our dreams that our feelings of helplessness and frustration break through. A youthful, attractive woman of 50, who has been trying to get up the courage to break out of a miserable 18-year marriage, describes the vividness and import of what she called her fish tank dream. It proceeded by exactly the year, by exactly a year, the signing of her separation agreement, and it bolted her straight out of bed one night with its energy.
She says, I was floating like a dead person inside a huge glass fish tank and trying to talk, but I couldn't make myself understood. Jim was standing outside the tank and trying to talk to the dead me. The live me was standing outside the fish tank across from me, across from him and shouting, don't talk to her. Can't you see that's not the real me? Here, look at me. I'm the real me. The bitter truth the dream revealed was that her husband never looked her way. Even more importantly, it revealed that she was actively involved in keeping the real me hidden. This was the dream's true pathos. And when she recognised it, sitting up in her bed in the middle of the night, she began to sob. It was not just him, the unloving husband, from whom she was hiding. It was anyone with whom she might have had a close and satisfying relationship. As much as she wanted that relationship, as much as she desperately yearned for it, it was lost to her to let out the real me was too scary. Dr. Alexandra Simons tells the story of a patient who came into treatment because she'd been feeling depressed. Not long after beginning therapy, the woman had a dream. She was hanging outside her apartment building high above the street, clinging desperately to the windowsill with her fingernails. Inside, her husband walked by. The woman tried to shout for help through the window, but all she could produce was a stifled whisper. Her husband passed on by without hearing her. The powerful symbolism in dreams like these represents, according to Dr. Simons, a whole category of women who, though highly accomplished in their professional lives, have inner needs to be taken care of that are deeply frightening to them. A dream is a telltale. For some, it may provide the first startling clue that something is wrong. It can also be an indication that old patterns are breaking up and change is occurring. A college professor with a history of finding it difficult to assert herself had a dream that she was a car passenger trying to tell the driver what to do. A few months later, after she'd gained some insight into the fact that she needed to establish more control over her life, she dreamt she was sitting in the passenger seat of a moving car and the driver's seat was horrifyingly empty. Such a dream may be upsetting, but, may also, but it may also, as in this case, signify progress. The woman had moved right out there to the frontier recognition that she was alone and unprotected in the world, sitting in the passenger seat with no driver. Once that's been faced, you may as well decide to sit in the driver's seat. A dream can also be a bright harbinger of a new world, one that comes not from fame or fortune, but from having arrived at some inner resolution. After I'd been in analysis for several years, I had what I'd thought of ever since as my Harlem dream. In it, Harlem figured 
as a metaphor for life itself, a strange and motley world, teeming with surprise and gladness, and a potential for danger. Here is how it unfolded. I am walking up a main street in Harlem, probably 7th Avenue, with two girlfriends. I have the feeling I haven't been in Harlem for a long time. It's scary, but at the same time, I feel it isn't all that scary. I should be able to cope, I told myself. There are skills and knowledge for coping in Harlem. Getting along here is not just a matter of life. The amount of action and hustle in the streets, crowds of people, noise, moving vehicles disturbs me. I am worrying about my safety when we stop to look in the window of a Cuchifrito place. This one specializing in dried fish. Dried fish. My friends go directly into the shop, but I, stunned by the overwhelming variety of things to choose from, stand outside, utterly immobilized. Finally, I walk into the store, pushing myself to go into the store, hoping that the very act of moving will help me when I get inside to choose. Inside on the counter are tantalizing things, broad scallops for a nickel apiece, huge halves of avocados. Suddenly the thought occurs to me that I might not have enough money. I dig into my pockets and find relief, find with relief. 35 cents. I'll take two oysters, I tell the tall black man behind the counter. He's dressed in chef's whites. A big turkey blanche towers on his head. There is a mean, suspecting look in his eye as he pushes the oysters towards me. I stumble awkwardly with my coins, and he shoves my shoulder. I saw what you were doing, he shouts. You were trying to cover the nickel, so that I would think it was a quarter. No, I wasn't, I protest angrily. I was only confused. I pick up the oysters and walk out of the shop. Out in the middle of 7th Avenue, some men are playing in a street game, snapping a wire-like rope about a foot off the ground. I look at them and decide they aren't out to hurt anyone, and then hop over the rope, but I feel angry at my girlfriends for not warning me. Hey, I shout, how come you didn't tell me about this before I stepped off the curb? They shrug, and I think, maybe I'm making a lot out of nothing. Maybe crossing a busy street with a lot of hustle and action is just something you go ahead and do. When I get to the other side of the street, my friends are waiting, and the people crowding the sidewalk no longer seem so threatening. It's Saturday afternoon in Harlem. There is sunshine, leafy, leafy trees line the curb. We stop to watch some little girls playing a sidewalk game. In trying to learn from a dream, 
I pay attention to what I was feeling and thinking about as it unfolded. This dream began with my feeling anxious and ill at ease in a strange place. Then I had the experience of being presented with a plethora of tantalizing options and finding myself unable to take action on my own behalf. The poignancy of this, as I thought back to the dream, was almost unbearable. There were good things available to me, but I couldn't move in their direction. Something was keeping me rooted to the sidewalk, frozen. Then came a critical moment in the dream. Move anyway, an inner voice had instigated. You can't just keep standing there. In that instant, something in me decided to move. After entering the store, I felt confused and insecure. I had to check and recheck my coins. I fumbled a lot with getting out the proper coins to pay for my food. Finally, I had the experience of being hassled unfairly, and indeed, quite irrationally, by the man behind the counter. Not only was he wrong, but he was mean to me. Downright, arbitrarily mean. But so what? This sort of craziness couldn't touch me anymore. Meanness, arbitrariness, was other people's problems. Was their problems. Able now to take care of myself, if someone didn't treat me decently, I was free, at last, to walk away. So I did. I told the man who was wrong and walked out of the store. I got scared in the street, but crossed it anyway. I got mad at my girlfriends for not protecting me, but saw that I was being silly. Crossing the street was a thing to pick up my feet to watch for cars and trucks. To wind my way through the activity, the action and the hustle, all on my own. When I got to the other side, I felt better, less vulnerable, really quite pleased with the way the afternoon was shaping up. I had crossed the street without getting hurt. I had my oysters, nicely breaded, two for 35. I had refused to be intimidated by the challenging man in the chef's hut. Instead of anxiety, I felt pleasure. I enjoyed the feeling of watching the little girls play their game. I felt the sun beating down on my back. I felt, in a word, whole. I should tell you that the moment... I should tell you that the moment when the inner self said move had nothing at all to do with willpower. It's not possible to pick yourself up by the bootstraps do or die, and take action in the face of overwhelming conflict. If, if willpower were the answer, I would never have written this book. That forward leap of the inner self came as a result of a long and meaningful process. The process of identifying contradictions within me and then working them through. Will can't be commanded to perform. When you are clear and unconflicted, your will operates quiet automatically. On the other hand, when you're swamped by feelings and attitudes that are mutually opposed, your will shuts down. What that means is that you aren't able to choose what you do in life. You act only because you're driven to act. You stay in the same unchallenging job 
not because you like it and choose it, or because, as some woman will tell you, my work is not as important to me as my family. You stay in it because your need to subordinate yourself is in direct opposition to your need to succeed and you are lying stagnant between the two needs. In the realm of love, you do not choose your mate for the joy of sharing yourself with another human being. If you are in conflict, you marry because of a compulsive and indiscriminate need to be loved, wanted, approved of, taken care of. It is the same need which blinds you to the fact that not everyone in this world is nice and trustworthy so that you fall apart when someone is mean or hostile. It is this need which makes you do anything in your power to avoid quarrels, disapproval, glowering looks. It is this need, finally, which makes you subordinate yourself, take second place, automatically shoulder the blame. From here, you are only one short step to the poor little me syndrome. Women who are driven by the compulsion to take second place actually end up impairing yeah, their capacities. And indeed, those who are driven a situation by the compulsion to take second place end up impairing their capacities. There was no sound except the rustle of a snake you become slithering among the dry stones. Tentative, insecure, no living soul would ever pass through this defile. Suppose I broke a leg or twisted an ankle. What would become of me? I shouted, but got no reply. I went on calling for a quarter of an hour. The silence was appalling. Simone had created a situation in which she could not give up without running the risk of losing her life. What did she do? The only thing she could do. She plucked up her courage and in the end got down safe and sound. Her friends worried over her and advised her that these solitary treks were dangerous. Particularly, they begged her to stop hitchhiking, but she was in a far fiercer mission than anyone realised. With passionate single-mindedness, she was retrieving her own soul. What does it mean to become one's own person? It means to take on the responsibility for one's own existence. To create one's own life, to divide, to devise one's own schedule. Her hikes became both the method and metaphor of her rebirth as an individual. Alone I walked the mists that hung over the summit of Saint-Victoire and trod along the ridge of the Pilon de Roy. Bracing myself against a violent wind, which sent my beret spinning down into the valley below. Alone again, I got lost in a mountain ravine on the Liberon range. Such moments, which all their warmth, tenderness and fury, belong to me and no one else. By the 14th of July, Bastille Day, when she was ready to return to 
Paris. She had become, in ways that are central, a different person. She had made friends and evaluated people solely on her own. She had found pleasure in solitude, assessing the lessons she learned in that remarkable year she wrote. I hadn't read much and my novel was worthless. On the other hand, I had worked in my chosen profession without losing heart and had been enriched by new enthusiasm. I was emerging triumphant from the trials to which I had been subjected. Separation and loneliness had not destroyed my peace of mind. And then the ultimate throwaway line, the line that seems so small, such a given once one has been through the rigours needed to achieve this balanced state. I knew that I could now rely on myself. When we begin to see how we contribute to our own weaknesses and vulnerability, how we actually nourish and defend our inner dependency, then slowly we begin to feel stronger. The more we face down our conflicts and seek out our own solutions, wrote Taryn Horney, the more inner freedom and strength we will gain. It is when we assume responsibility for our own problems that the centre of gravity begins to make that crucial shift from the other to the self. At this point, something remarkable happens. More energy becomes available to us. Energy that used to get lost in the energy leak as we exhausted ourselves repressing those aspects of our personalities we felt were unacceptable or frightening. Once we no longer need to defend and protect, that same energy is available for more positive efforts. Gradually we become less inhibited, less plagued by fear and anxiety, less deadened by self-contempt. The old panic with which we lived for so long disappears. We are less afraid of others. We are less afraid of ourselves. Spring free. Ultimately, the goal is emotional spontaneity, an inner liveliness that pervades everything we do, every work project, every social encounter, every love relationship. It comes from the conviction, I am the first force in my life. And it leads to what Karen Horney calls wholeheartedness, the ability to be without pretense, to be emotionally sincere, to be able to put the whole of oneself into one's feelings, one's work, and one's beliefs. I've thought about the women I've met who seem to possess wholeheartedness. Some are complex, creative, highly talented types. Others lead simpler, less visibly dramatic lives. But whether they are multi-talented, urban sophisticates, or country women up to their elbows in potting glaze, the quality of theirness, of having sprung free, is undeniable. Their experience of life is qualitatively different from, those, from that of those who haven't sprung free. Richer, less predictable, less bound by rules and institutional imprints. Even their way of expressing their experience is different. Pell Primus, a choreographer, 
told of how she meandered towards a doctorate in anthropology simply by being. My life has been travelling up by a river. Every now and then I would hear singing around the bend and so around the bend I would go and become occupied with living. Maybe years would go by and I'd realised, oh my god, I've got to get this PhD. So in the process of working on the PhD, I've lived many rivers and many peoples. Anthropology has become part of me rather than something superimposed. A moment occurs, a psychological moment, which may span weeks or even months, but which is often experienced as a particular moment in time in which the conditions of personality creating the conflict seem to unmesh as gears unmesh and we're released from the lockup that kept us immobilized. When this happens, all kinds of things become possible. There may be job changes, geographical moves, new relationships, creative pursuits not previously dreamt of. Those who have sprung free find themselves quite suddenly with the energy to engage. They cling tenaciously to life, all the while being free to rise and fall in rhythm with its tumults. There is a new experience of playfulness, of being fully alive, in which one is freer than ever before to exercise options, to accept or reject according to the desires of one's truest self. Powerful emotional experiences await those who are really living out their own scripts. Those who have sprung free have emotional mobility. They are able to move towards the things that are satisfying to them and away from those that are not. They are free also to succeed, to set goals, to take steps to reach those goals without the fear that they will fail. Their confidence derives from a realistic evaluation of both their limits and their abilities. One of the most expired the I have learned that freedom and independence can't be wrestled from others, from the, so from the society at large, from men, from women, but can only de be developed painstakingly from within. To achieve it, we will have to give up the dependencies we've used, like crutches, to feel safe. Yet the trade-off is not really so perilous. Those who believe in themselves do not have to fool themselves with empty dreams of things that are beyond their capabilities. At the same time, they do not waver in face of those tasks for which they are competent and prepared. They are realistic, well-grounded and self-loving. They are free at last to love others because they themselves are loved and they love themselves. All of these things, and no less, belong to those who have sprung free. If you want to turn your anxiety around to change your life, then there are three ways you can do it.
mentally, emotionally and physically. Typically these are separated, yet we often fail to see the connection when things that happen in one area affect the other two. But now we've built a truly balanced approach that has bound and woven these three things together. So now, mind, body and emotions, the physical, mental and emotional aspects are all bound into one approach. And this powerful approach gets you a crystal clear vision for the kind of life you'd like to live without anxiety holding you back and uncovers hidden challenges that may be sabotaging your ability and holding you back from getting the change you deserve. So you'll be renewed, re-energized and inspired to break the shackles of anxiety, transform your life and get all the happiness, health, success and fun you've always wanted to experience. Now you can unlock hidden power in your mind, body and emotions to overcome anxiety, stresses and overwhelm across all the key areas of your life. Get your anxiety free life book today to put it to the test and prove it to yourself and after you do you discover a few things. First this is the best approach you've ever tried and second your mind, body and emotions will be way more balanced and you'll get all the benefits that come with that. Increased confidence, more mental clarity and focus and tons less anxiety are yours for the taking. So do you want to experience what it feels like to be truly balanced? If so, get your anxiety free life book today and find out what it feels like to break the shackles of anxiety, transform your life and be inspired and re-energized. Now get all the happiness, health, success and fun you've always wanted to have. Get your copy to unlock your energy, clarity and confidence today. Go to www.indiegogo.com slash projects slash the anxiety free life book to get your copy today.